Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity. I'm Ellie Stuhler. For the London Design Festival, the pod that usually lives at White City Place is going on tour. For two days, we're recording from the Brompton Design District and from Exhibition Road outside the Victoria and Albert Museum. Today, we're on Exhibition Road outside the V&A, and producer David Michon is hosting. The London Design Festival, an intense 10 days of exhibitions, installations, product launches, trade fairs, and events, is both sprawling in terms of its coverage of the city and broad in its content. And no better way for the pod to help the festival wind down than to invite in two people who have been in the thick of it, reporting, moderating discussions and debates, and doing their best to take in the noteworthy aspects of this year's program. My name's Max Fraser and I work as a design curator, a journalist, uh, an author and also a consultant. I'm Priya Kanchandani, I'm a curator and writer and I'm the editor of Icon magazine. Priya is the editor of Icon magazine and has previously worked for the Victorian Albert Museum and as head of arts programs for the British Council in India. This year, she also curated the Indian exhibition for the London Design Biennale, which focused on indigo and its cultural, social, and design significance in India. Max is a respected design journalist, curator, consultant, and author. His imprint, Spotlight Press, has published the London Design Guide and the Design Book of Ideas, and he has contributed to the Financial Times, Blueprint, Frame, and Designio, among other publications. He has also served as the deputy director of the London Design Festival. And here we are in this glorious pod. And uh, the context of, of us talking today is off the back of the day we've just been through, uh, which was the ex- called the Exhibition Road Day of Design, which was a sort of one-day event celebrating 10 years of the London Design Festival operating within the V&A and in partnership with them. And, and I thought what was quite nice is that there was a, also a synergy within Albertopolis, Alber Topo- is that it? <laughs> which is the, uh, the area we're in where you have the V&A, the Natural History Museum, the Science Museum, Imperial College and the Royal College of Arts. Um, and and you, we, like, we sort of think of them working in their own little bubbles, but I think what came across today is that actually there's quite good synergy between them. So the, the talks that we were doing were inviting people from those various different backgrounds to come and talk about something very specific. And um, you and I have been through a marathon of 10 talks, each one lasting half an hour. What was the one that you particularly loved, or were there a few? Gosh, well, it's been a bit of a relay of a day, as I think you referred to it earlier, because we've been kind of relay, handing yes. the baton to each other. Yeah, back-to-back, um, back, no breaks. I think, yeah, 10.30 to 5. Mm. Um, I thought it was... Yeah, um, it was great that we opened the day with Albertopolis. Um, mm. I thought it kind of established the context of where we are and um, why we're talking about design here and now and about the kind of, yeah, I guess the themes um, on which Albertopolis was founded and how those are still relevant to design now. Um, that would kind of set the tone for the day. And then I think the... There were quite a few I really enjoyed, but I was particularly interested in the one about robots, um, where Dr. Thrish from um, the new Dyson faculty at Imperial um, talked about how um, he feels that robots should be designed more like humans. And he talked about reflexes and the design of the human body and how AI and technology and the future of robots could respond to that I thought that was really exciting yeah he was also sort of laughingly said 
that we know very little about ourselves in trying to design these robots. Yeah, it was quite interesting that, yeah, when he said that on the one hand, robots should be more like us, we don't know enough about ourselves in order to be able to recreate that in another being. Yeah. Which is why he was quite sceptical about the idea of biomimicry. Yes. And what was was his preference? He called it bio... He had another um, term for it, it, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, that was that was really good, Can't and we remember. had a really good turnout as well. <laughs> what about you? Yeah. Did you have any any I'm, highlight? I mean, it was quite interesting because this morning it was pouring with rain, and of course this is an event that was supposed to take place outside, but we managed to we we, we were put in a room inside, and the, and the day warmed up as indeed the weather did, uh, so that eventually we were we were able to be outside, um, and. Uh, it was interesting how the dynamic changed in doing that. The dynamic indoors was a bit more focused, I thought, um, and mm. uh, one that particularly focused my uh, attentions after a glass of wine at lunch was a talk about the relationship between data compression, prediction, intelligence, and creativity from an AI researcher called Alex Graves. And I don't know about you, but it completely was kind of mind-blowing, this guy's articulation of the subject. And um, I felt completely out of my depth talking to him. Um, but sort of fascinating stuff was coming out of the conversations today around robotics, artificial intelligence, um, mm. autonomous vehicles, all these kind of things, that buzzwords that are talked about a lot that are getting everybody excited. But how far, it struck me how far we seem to be away from understanding it or really implementing it into our lives um, fully having said that he also said that artificial intelligence is completely part of our existence already we just don't recognize it as artificial intelligence like all the, all of the things that our phones are enabling us to do and you know the what google maps allows us to travel and and um so easily now and we all take all those things for granted mm. so and that's always struck me as an interesting thing about good design or indeed good technology is that it kind of happens and you don't almost notice it happening. You know, remember when the Mm. Oyster card was introduced, which is a very simple, um, what you call it, a very simple uh, RFID or whatever it is that that, that the technology within the card that activates the gates to open and, and charges your account at the same time and all of these sorts of things that manifest themselves in a credit card that we, we understand something very tangible but you know we were excited about that for about a week and then everyone you know just take it for granted and I think some of the best design and the best technology does that yeah you just get it it works immediately and you can kind of move on it's one less thing you have to think about in your life yeah I think it's pretty cool that when exhibition road was set up that you know the exhibitions that were happening here the collections that were being formed were pushing the boundaries of what design mm. meant mm. Um, and the arts and crafts movement was gaining momentum and so on. Um, and I thought that the programme ran sort of in parallel in the sense it was really pushing the boundaries of what design is now yeah. through exploring those kinds of subjects. Yeah. Um, and uh, Christian Volsing, who spoke about the video games exhibition um, mm. that he co-curated, um, kind of he really went into that when he explained why video games are a form of design Mm. um what was once considered basically software Mm. um and then for a while was toyed with as perhaps being a form of art is now very much embedded in the discipline of design Mm. um yeah and i think it shows how the discipline is morphing itself and adapting to the contemporary Mm. the way we use design today one of the um if, if we can just broaden out a bit to the 
to the wider London Design Festival, which takes place across the city um, for for nine days. It takes uh, an awful lot longer th than that to organise. Um, I used to work as the deputy director of the festival, so I should know. Um, and 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 it manifests itself in this like very energetic festival right across right across the city. Um, and I think there are two strands that seem to be coming out of that in terms of how designers are operating. There are those that seem to be in that, that world of producing more sort of nice stuff that we can have on our mantelpiece or in the corner of our room. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and, and in that vein, we're talking about beautiful objects and we're talking about objects that are um, cleverly crafted or beautifully crafted using a very specific skill or a specific material. And that all has validity. And then there seems to be another channel of designers who are interested in some of the things we just talked about, you know, how can we solve some much bigger societal issue, issues using design and design thinking and design systems. Uh, and I curated a, a, very, a very small feature at 100% Design, which is one of the large trade fairs um, at Olympia that was called 100% Futures. And that was looking at designers and entrepreneurs who are doing that. They're looking at issues within the urban domain and how they can perhaps solve some of those issues. They might be small, they might be local, they might be really niche, or they might be really large and ambitious schemes. Um, but it, it was just to sort of test it within the arena of consumerism, which the trade fair is, uh, could we test the idea that design can be something different? And I know that's something that you explore regularly in the magazine as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting because um, I feel that... Um, having come from more, I suppose, design thinking background than from the sector, mm. um, that I'm more interested in design and the material world as opposed to design in the sense of luxury and product. Um, and I think that shift has sort of happened over the last decade in the way that design is written about and curated. Mm. Um, yeah, and that's definitely reflected in the way I've, we've been editing um, Icon. Um, for example, my first cover story was about a roller coaster as a piece of architecture. Mm. So it's just, I suppose, about acknowledging aspects of the material world as design, which perhaps we sometimes overlook in favor of luxury objects. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really interesting shift and one that is reflected in some of the talks today, like, for example, the one on video games and video games mm. as design. Um, so those are the sorts of stories that are really interesting. Um, and I found that London Design Biennale, which is sort of um, sits at the more artistic end, I suppose, of of design and of the festival, mm. um, re really reflects that um, in that it's sort of about um, design and how design tells stories reflected sometimes through a sort of more artistic format. So, um, so the pavilion I curated, which was India, um, was about indigo, the, the which is obviously a colour, an aspect of design. Um, but it's about um, how indigo runs deeply into India's history and how it's also relevant today. So we're trying to, you're trying to tell quite a, quite a big story um, as opposed to the traditional design installation about a particular product. Um, so we use the format of film, which so essentially um, we used archival footage of an indigo farm um, where indigo farmers would beat indigo plant with their feet to extract the dye and we then place this um onto different scenes um 
one of which was a city that's painted indigo in the north of India. And these farmers would sort of move across the scenography. Um, and the, the contemporary scene is a sort of escalator with figures clad in indigo going up it, signifying the sort of trajectory to the future. Um, yeah, and it was, it, you're, you're try, we were trying to tell a story about um, how indigo was farmed in the 19th century um, under colonial rule when farmers were essentially forced to produce indigo um, mm-hmm. under conditions of slavery um, and how those labour politics, not to that degree, but to some degree exist in the gl- politics of global trade and the way in which denim is produced in India now. Mm. Um, so I thought that throughout the BNI there was some quite big stories being told and that the that as a BNI it had in, evolved since its first iteration, which perhaps you might have been more involved in were you still at the festival then no no I wasn't actually I left just the year before the first Biennale <laughs> how how do you perceive the festival a few years on from having worked at it how do you think that it's shifted yeah it's interesting I mean you know I, I was living and breathing it you know 365 days a year and you you work all year round for this nine day thing which is a weird has a weird psychology to it I have to admit you kind of, you know, you're climbing the hill, you're climbing the mountain, and then it happens, and then you fall off the edge of a cliff afterwards, emotionally and physically. Um, it feels like that every month when you publish a magazine. Yeah, yeah, of course it does. <laughs> um, and and actually, it's quite nice to be on the receiving end. Of course, before I started, I was on the receiving end, and now I'm again I'm on the receiving end. But I'm also very busy during this week through other other projects and things. But um, I don't know. I'm very conscious, and I was when I was still at the festival. I left in 2014, by the way. Um, that it was getting large um, and perhaps too large. And there's that sort of two sides of the coin in so much as, you know, here we are in a, in a massive city, a global city. Um, we, we've got this, the space to be able to do exhibitions and events all over the city and include as many people as possible. And I love the inclusivity of the event. Most events are free. Anyone can attend. Um, but we've also got to a point where there's just a bit too much going on and it's a bit too spread out in the city. And in some respects, that's it's kind of who can shout the, lo- the loudest um, and, and geography plays a big part as well. Um, and I think a lot of really good, interesting parts of the festival are just a bit missed or lost because uh, you can't physically get there and there aren't, there aren't enough days, there isn't enough time to see it all. I mean, you and I are an example of that. I mean... Between the two of us, we haven't actually seen yeah. a huge amount. Of I mean, the London's a huge city, um, and so and the festival spreads all the way from Shoreditch to West Kensington, um, no, which I, is I, about an hour I and a half of more, distance. More, yeah, yeah, um, and beyond. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's definitely a challenge to see a lot. Yeah, um, and it's quite an intensive period of time. Yeah, um, when there's a lot happening, and I think it's yeah, it, it is pretty much physically impossible to see everything in seven days. Yeah, so so I suppose I suppose what I'm saying is it's like well, it's great to have all these things, but actually, at what point do we sort of stop getting bigger? I I, I, I hate this obsession across all areas of business that everything just has to keep growing and get bigger. I mean, you know, we're in the business of editing, and 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 actually trying to make things more coherent and understandable. And when I was at the festival, that was a big challenge. You know, we, we, we took a very democratic approach to all of these events. And as we added 10% more every year, um, how do we keep telling the story? And how do we uh, help? Our job is to help people 
find what interests them. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, we can't sort of push one thing to the fore to the detriment of something else. So we did this sort of, th we would third party preference. In other words, we'd ask somebody yeah. like you as an editor of a magazine, what are you most looking forward to seeing? And then we'd publish your results just as a way of guiding people perhaps to certain things. And what, one of the one of the key ways to get people interested, I think, is to just put something in their path. Mm. Uh, they, they just need a one touch point and then they're kind of off, you know, and they can explore as they like. Do you think that its expansion is partly to do with the introduction of design districts? Because as far as I understand, those districts can be initiated by somebody within the district rather than by London Design Festival. Yeah, I mean, the, the district thing w was was happening long before I started. And it, actually, it started in this area, in Brompton Design District. And I was also in favour of it. And one of our criteria for anyone who wanted to add a district was that there needed to be kind of at least 10 events happening within a sort of 15-minute walking radius, you know? And, and the nice thing there is it's like pop out South Kensington Tube, uh, you know, pick up a map and you're off and just follow the follow the trail and you'll see lots of things in a short space of time. And that is a very good way of starting. Now there's a, like, I don't know how many design districts there are. There are, there are a lot. So already that becomes problematic. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, of course, once upon a time, there was only one trade fair as well. And now there are four. Um, so, so I suppose if we're talking about you know, the experience for the visitor has just become more diluted, probably more daunting and more difficult to to know where to start and how to engage. And that concerns me a bit. But then if you didn't have that all that choice, what would it be? Would it be too simple and too boring? You know, like how do you how do you retract from it without everyone in the industry going, Well, it was a bit it was a bit quieter this year, wasn't it? Or it was a bit didn't seem to be as much content. We all seem to have this insatiable kind of appetite for, for more. It might be because of my interest, but I think generally I'm during LDF because you have to be selective. I'm I'm generally drawn to the museum programming. Mm. Um, I think perhaps because I had worked at the V&A for several years um, and was involved with LDF mm. um, through the Design Fund, which was a scheme to acquire new objects, which we would exhibit every year mm. at the V&A during LDF. Um, and it seemed like a good opportunity to engage with contemporary um, in a way that um, at that time, at least, because the contemporary department had been dissolved, seemed like a really good opportunity. Mm. Um, and with the introduction of the design museum as well, there's so much going on just in the museums that yeah. sometimes I don't see all the installations. Yeah. Yeah. But I have seen a few really nice... I think the gems of LDF are the kind of pop-ups in places that you don't expect. Yeah. So, for example, um, SCP have um, a pop-up installation of brushes curated yeah, by Michael that. Marriott. I saw that. Set yeah, against a uh, pink um, installation backdrop. Yeah. And it's, it was just, yeah, it was just fantastic. Yeah, it's really nerdy. I loved it. In a, in a fabulous way. <laughs> yeah, yeah I a, think those a, are the sort of gems that, yeah. that you don't otherwise see um, when you go to a design museum through the rest of the year. Yeah. I mean, it... Yeah, it's an interesting one because I've always felt like the design industry is very good at talking to itself, you know, and I think actually probably every industry is good at doing that. Um, and and one of the great opportunities that a festival like this offers is for us to engage with people who consume the stuff that we're talking about or, or you know, and I, and I sometimes wonder if we're so insular looking 
you know, like who cares about half the stuff we're talking about, you know, and the designers that excite us, most people won't have even heard of. And, you know, a new chair or a new sofa that's launching, most people couldn't care less about. So I, I'm kind of always interested in how, you know, whilst, yes, you could say it's an industry wide event and and indeed london is such a magnet to the world that we we have a lot of international visitors visitors within the industry coming to it but actually being on a street like this right now with lots of people streaming by the general public who might have just decided to go to the vna today and then they stumble across yeah the festival well, I program think, I, think I think that's a very good yeah. thing but do they understand it do they engage with it do they do they care you're listening to a special episode of Thought Starters, a podcast for White City Place, recorded on Exhibition Road outside the Victorian Albert Museum as part of the London Design Festival. In conversation are Priya Kanchandani, editor of Icon Magazine, and Max Fraser, design journalist, curator, consultant, and author. I think that, um, that it's no secret that LDF at its core is really a trade event. Yeah. Um, I mean, London Design Fair, 100% Design, um, Design Junction, at their core are basically trade mm. events. Um, I think, you know, over recent years, with the um, growing number of kind of installations and pop-ups, I think that LDF, is, its public appeal has begun to grow. Um, but I think um, that, yeah, places like the V&A, like, exhibition road where we've been speaking today and the institutions that partnered with the event they are the people who kind of know how to engage a public mm. um and that's where i think design meets um a broader audience mm. um yeah and i mean we were told that today alone um there were well, the museum was almost at capacity which meant they were about six thousand people in there yeah all interested basically in design decorative art it's yeah. pretty incredible yeah um, and that's just at one particular time, which means it was likely that today about 20,000 people went into the museum. Yeah. I mean, that those kind of numbers are pretty astonishing. No, those sort of numbers we were very proud of when I was working at the festival. We would get, we would wait with bated breath for the V&As. Yeah, I, I, I always thought it was interesting when LDF used those figures when I was working there. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and they were they were bona fide figures. I mean, but they're I not, think, they're, all those people aren't necessarily there to see LDF. That's well, my that's point. true. That's true. But they might be there to see the future exhibition, the Frida Kahlo exhibition. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the video games, there's yeah. plenty of other stuff happening but at actually, the same time. But actually, yes. And, and so a, a figure we hit when I was around was 100,000 plus, And we, we toppled the, the six figures. Uh, and, and actually, if you talk to the museum, they'll say that norm, on a normal week, they'll get about 50,000. So, so we like to think that we were, you know, doubling their audience. But also we were, uh, you know, the synergy was perfect because we were bringing a new audience to the museum. But of course the existing museum audience was seeing our content. So it was kind of perfect marriage, really, of the two things. And, and I think it was very clever for the festival to get involved with a museum like the V&A that has such a global reputation and is such an important place for not just contemporary design, but all of design through the ages and, and you know, how blessed we are in London to have, have a place like this. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and if we talk about some of the installations that the festival builds around the city, you know, Trafalgar Square is a, a space that the festival is able to use. And, you know, I think of just putting, just putting design in people's paths, you know, on their commute to work, they stumble across it and then they tell their 
partner or their kids or their grannies or whatever oh i bumped into this weird sort of installation thing in trafalgar square today and they tell them yeah. about it that that's helps spread the word not just in the festival but of of design yeah and it's pretty incredible that as devlin was given the chance to take over trafalgar square and recreate one of the lions so yeah that was great yeah yeah and quite kind of quite a fun piece as well yeah really fun um but i think it's she's uh, a great designer yeah I, th I think that, you know if, we probably both agree that design is a very democratic industry and should remain so. And it should be not just this kind of luxury elitist um, business, which often it is, but actually design is something that we all use, we all engage with, whether we know it or not. Well, um, yeah. And ironically, if you look at the media coverage in, these, in, in this period of time, we happen to overlap with London Design, sorry, London Fashion Week every year. And Fashion well, Week gets loads of, that's true, of pages, yeah. but you can't actually access it or go to it as a member of the public. Well, one thing I'll say, I like to think that design is democratic because, as you say, we all use it and design is in the everyday. Um, but I don't think, and I come from a public institution's background. Mm. That is my background and I edit a magazine for a broad audience. Um, but I don't think that the design industry is democratic because I mm. don't think it's representative of our population. Um, and I think architecture in particular is skewed towards particular, well, particular types of designers. Um, and um, the talk I did with Farshid Misavi on Friday, um, we ended up going into this subject in some depth. Um, and she feels strongly that women, about women being very underrepresented in architecture, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, she was very candid and very open about it, which I really appreciated. Um, but she said that when she goes to meetings with clients and suppliers, pretty much 99% of the time they are male mm. and she feels a, like a minority. Mm. Um, and it was really great that she was open about it because I don't think we're open enough about it. So perhaps it's good that we're even having this subject now. Mm. Um, um, and at the end, there was a quite a young architect who asked her the question, you know, what can we do about this? And I thought it was fantastic that this young woman had the chance to ask someone like Varshid's question. Mm. Um, and her response was very honest, which was basically, I don't know that there's an, there is an easy answer. And she said, I find it as hard as anyone else. Um, you know, given what she's accomplished, um, to know that even she face, faces those struggles um, was quite empowering. Mm. And, um, and then you said you don't think the design industry is actually that democratic. I think democratic also means representative. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that, if we're really honest, I don't think it's representative, really, of the people that, that design serves. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no I would agree with that. <laughs> um, yes, lots of white, um, middle-class men. Yeah, I mean, I've, I think I was, I've, I'm honoured <laughs> to even be an editor of Icon, to be honest, because Icon has never had a woman editor in its entire history before. All right. Let alone a woman of, you know, BAME back, background. I mean, I'm s fully supportive of that conversation. It's such a, such a sad reality that we have to even talk about it, you know? Don't you think? Yeah, totally. I mean, it just shouldn't be. You shouldn't wouldn't be think in the 21st century that we'd be having this conversation yeah. about gender. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what would you like to see from LDF in the future? Well, I think, I think if I link it to what I was saying before about the size of the festival, I... I do strongly believe that it's getting too big and I'm just wondering are there ways that we can actually streamline it a bit better or or create more collaborate collaborations within certain 
um, parts of the city or within certain venues so that it's not so diluted and spread out. Um, I'd also like to see less superfluous design. I think quite a lot of what we see is just you look at it and you just think, well, great, but it's a one-hit thing. You know, lots of installations that are built purely for the Instagram generation that just, you know, use materials and energy and then what happens to them, they just go in the bin afterwards um, without really posing any particular um, social message or anything like that. Um, and, and I also like to think that one message that we can keep pushing is, is along the lines of what we were saying earlier about you know the role and responsibility that d designers have and the design um, not just designers but their their clients and also um, fabricators and manufacturers have to create a world that is using materials and processes and energy and all these things that we're concerned about and, and waste streams more efficiently um, and that um, we're, we're very good at talking about those things there'll be you know, there would have been a million talks throughout the week that addressed that topic, but how can we start to implement it and stop contradicting ourselves? What about you? What's your future festival? That's really interesting. Um, I think that LDF, you know, traditionally being a trade show at mm. its core, um, I think it needs to make a more, concert, more concerted transition to being a public-facing event um, and thereby attract um, a broader audience. Um, that's what I would really like for LDF. I'd like to be able to say to my friends, I'm participating in LDF, would you like to come along? And I would like them to know that that was ha even happening, which mm. currently I don't believe that they they would really in a conscious way. Mm. Um, on the other hand, they have known about London Design Biennale. So mm. perhaps that is an example of, given that's part of LDF, how they might be able to apply similar principles to the programming overall. Mm. Um, I think one way in which they may achieve that is through um, a slightly more curated approach. Um, at the moment, I think the, the event is quite diffused um, and it's um, perhaps more curated within design districts, but mm. I think it could be better edited overall. Um, yeah, that's I mean, what it's, I'd really like to see. the London Design Biennale is, is, you know, is located in Somerset House. It's a communicable thing to visit and I, and I suppose what you're saying is you know with these 100 uh, 200 plus events happening around the city it's like wow where do I start yeah there's only so much you can do yeah I would say that above all what I would wish what I wish for design in London is that um in spite of the challenges of the economic climate the housing crisis and Brexit which is only going to worsen with time I just hope that despite that that design continues to thrive mm. um and I've always you know taking pride in living in a city um that encourages creativity mm. um and i just fear that um the factors i've just mentioned um may mean that it can't thrive for much longer um and our special issue of icon this month which is a london issue is touches on these sorts of issues mm. um and yeah i think we perhaps need to be a little more conscious about of them in the design sector design is inherently optimistic in my opinion, I think that I think you have to be to be a designer because you're creating newness. You're putting new prospects into the world. But, but if you're optimistic, then you may say, well, I'm going to go to Lisbon and be optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very possible. And, and perhaps we haven't got time to talk about Brexit, nor should we. That was Priya Kanchandani, editor of Icon magazine, and Max Fraser, design journalist, curator, consultant and author. This has been Thought Starters, recorded in the pod on Exhibition Road outside the Victoria and Albert Museum as part of the London Design Festival. 
Thought Starters is a DNN Co. project for White City Place, produced by David Michel, recorded by Alex Portfelix, and edited by Sean Crook. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram at the handle at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, Acast, or Stitcher. Give us a rating, write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time. This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the Brompton Design District. Thought Starters is a Diana Co. project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded by Alex Funnel, and edited by Sean Crook. Actually, you know, this should be...